Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Gavin, I heard you took a little trip last week. I did. So uh, my my girlfriend and I took a wonderful trip down to uh, sort of the Salt Lake City area of Utah. Um, you know, she lives in sort of southern slash central California, and I live in western South Dakota. So uh, if you're familiar makes at all with makes perfect sense for a relationship. Well, I mean... Let's not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> if you're at all familiar with uh, geography of sort of the Rocky Mountain area, so like between the Rockies and California, there's basically nothing between them. Especially like, like there's desert. basically, there's a lot of desert. Uh, so the only like population centers where there's things to do in that area is like Phoenix, Salt Lake City, uh, I guess Vegas. Vegas. And then, but once you get north of that, north of Vegas, there's really not much. Um, mm-hmm. And so Salt Lake City area was the the easiest, you know, roughly halfway between us. Um, she'll bother, like, it'll bother her if I don't say it was slightly longer for her. But uh, <laughs> no, we went to Give a couple national parks. Yeah, exactly. She, at least the... Both days, actually, both of the the two and the from, uh, she did drive longer than me, so credit to her. Uh, but no, we went to two national parks and a national monument, uh, as well as uh, this really cool reptile zoo type place. But it's you know a lot cooler than a zoo because you actually get to you know see the an- or like hold the animals and interact with the animals on like a zoo where you just sort of see them you know behind some glass or or you know above them on a walkway or something. Um, run by this really cool guy that I've been subscribed to forever on YouTube. Uh, I'll, even though uh, I'm sure he'll not listen to this, but uh, so uh, we'll plug his channel. It's Clint's reptiles. If you like any sort of non-traditional pet, uh, he's super, super knowledgeable. He's got a PhD in biology. It was such an incredible experience. Uh, You know, my girlfriend Liz is not at all, uh, at least a snake person. Uh, she likes lizards, not at all a snake person. And she actually touched a snake without, you know, dying. So it was a good experience all around. It was, <laughs> it was really incredible. I mean, you're trying to give your girlfriend credit for uh, driving longer. I think your girlfriend gets credit for just listening to this podcast because I could not say the same for, uh, for my girlfriend. Oh, for shame, Nikki. I know. Wow. She, we are, we are what, three minutes into this podcast and she's not, she won't even hear this much. So uh, Nikki, oh, if wow. you're hearing this, Nikki, if you're hearing this, you you know feel free to call me out, but you're not going to hear this. <laughs> anyway, fired. so I, I'm glad I'm glad you had a good time, though. I know you know you know, obviously I made the joke, but being that far away is obviously you know not a whole lot of fun on any level. Right? Glad, yeah. You know, that probably makes the time you spend together just that much better. It, yeah, it really does. And then also, she also pointed out uh, something from the last episode that uh, I wanted to correct. So, so not so oh, boy. not as much correct as much as just sort of add on. So uh, in the, this week in science, uh, we talked about the people who discovered DNA, Watson and Crick. And I thought about this at the time, but I did not bring it up. Mm -hmm. They get a little too much credit for that discovery personally. Did we talk about Watson and Crick last week? Yes, we did. Uh, Just when we were talking about, uh, because we were talking about other famous scientists around this time, because we were talking about Stephen Hawking. Well, then I deserve just as much of the blame on this one because I know damn well that uh, they don't get 
or they get a little too much credit. We're leaving out some of our uh, our female scientists here, correct? Exactly. There is uh, a brilliant, brilliant scientist named Rosalind Franklin, who did a large majority. Of, I w- I'm not. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with it, but I know that she did a lot of work on you know that research that does not get talked about nearly enough in recent years. It has, but historically, it she has not gotten the credit that she deserves. So that should be that should have been pointed out last week. Our our both collective apologies. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, however much work she did, it was enough work so that way it shouldn't be Watson and Crick. It should be Watson, Crick, and Franklin in some order exactly. or another. So, absolutely. However, so you mentioned this week in science. I think that's a, a pretty good segue into uh, this week we have in science. So, Gavin, let's uh, let's bust out the calendar. What was going on previously? I'm going to guess and say 2016 this time. So we have a couple options, actually. So this oh one's kind of up to you. <laughs> so we have we have an option 2016 from 20 one of them is from 2016 so knowing nothing else about I pick them, that one do you want okay <laughs> i want that one just so i'm correct so, okay this is from march 18th uh so uh tomorrow if you're listening to this the day it comes out uh so march 18th 2016 chinese forest restoration uh efforts are successful is the headline which immediately a hopeful headline yeah that's unusual yeah, right. Especially for 2016. Uh, I mean, it was early <laughs> in the year, so uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't know anyway, yet. Harambe was no still idea. alive at that point. <laughs> was he? Yeah, he was. Well, wait. When did that happen? March. March. That was. Yeah. This was. Hold on. This was March. You keep talking. I will look it up. This it is the important later. information was, here. Yeah, we need a Harambe episode. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. Yeah. So. Uh, The calendar goes on to say, In a time of deforestation and global warming threats, China documented unlikely success in its forest restoration efforts. Overcoming rampant air pollution and water shortages, China's governmental conservation organizations reported they successfully converted large plots of former cropland back into forest, with 61,000 square miles, or for our non-Americans, 158,000 square kilometers, of land showing meaningful gain in tree cover. While the results are encouraging, Chinese spokespeople have since voiced their commitment to increasing environmental conservation efforts even further. Wow, this is good news all the way around. I didn't even know like this was a thing. Reforestation, wow. Oh yeah, like there there are so many different kinds of uh, you know, reforestation type efforts. You know, even here, uh, there's something called a conservation easement that like if you're a farmer, or, or just own a lot of land, um, the government can essentially pay you to not develop your land, to keep it really? natural, essentially. Yeah. Um, I think a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that I did some like consultation work where I just sort of went and gave this, this couple like a little tour of their ranch. Um, and they had a conservation easement on all 20 acres or so of their land. Um, and they were like, which is fine because we literally just have a driveway and a garage built on it. And they live in a camper in their garage and then just use the garage for uh, like workspaces. They grow some of their own food and stuff. So it was, uh, they were like, we don't ever plan on doing anything here anyway, like with the actual land itself. So <laughs> it's um, a win for everyone. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Anyway, so the important that is, news. That is good and uplifting Harambe. news. Harambe it was killed on May 28th, 2016. 
For some reason, I thought it was before that. I thought it was before 2016. 2016 really was an awful year for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was an awful year. And yet you look at it four years later in 2020, it's like, man, we had no idea who we were up against. Okay, just because 2020 was bad doesn't mean 2016 wasn't. I'm great. <laughs> I, I 100%. You know, 20, 2016 was the OG bad year, but... Uh, whew. I don't know. Every every presidential election year, I guess we're just in for another one. True. You're absolutely right. 2024. <laughs> uh, Gavin Mike oh 2024. Boy. Anyways, so I think we can get into um, our actual topic for today. And this is a topic that we've uh, we've kind of hinted at since I believe the beginning of this podcast. Uh, Gavin, yeah. you want to tell us a little bit about what, what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about sort of how money plays into publishing in science, not so much the research, but the publishing and the money in research can be a completely, you know, separate episode, but this is purely about after the research is already done, then what? Um, and a lot of this is going to be taken from a really incredible documentary called paywall the movie. You can find it completely free online because you know, they don't want to be behind a paywall, <laughs> but you can find it <laughs> at pay, paywallthemovie.com. Uh, it's, it's about an hour long. Most of this information that I'm getting is taken from this, as well as just sort of casual conversations I've had with uh, some of my professors over the years. Um, but yeah, so if, if you've never seen, never heard of it, I highly recommend you know, after this uh, episode, go watch it. It really, even the if the link will be in the description. All, yeah, so it'll be down in the show notes. And if if even if you're not at all in the sciences, this will just blow your mind because the the whole industry of publishing science is A, way larger than you think, and B, way more powerful than you think in reasons that we're going to talk about. And so I, as somebody who's never heard of this movie before, but is kind of just broadly aware of this sort of you know, publishing bias and things, is this specific to the sciences or is this uh is this a movie i understand the you know the phenomenon is quite broad but the movie specifically how what you know areas what disciplines does the movie focus on uh it focuses on sort of just pu publications in general so um it could be they talk about everything from like you know the the like quote unquote core sciences so you know your biology geology physics chemistry but they also talk about things like economics psychology um, sociology, sort of the more uh, social sciences. So it's it's not restricted just to, uh, you know, the the kind of science that Hard we sciences. typically talk about here. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's super interesting. All right, so I I have not heard of this before, so this is exciting. So uh, let's take away. So what you know, do you want to kind of start off by describing what what the problem is, or maybe what we all think the way we you know the way we think things all work and then we can talk about what the problem is. How do you want to, you know, go about it? Sure. So let's, I'll turn that back around to you. How do you think scientists without looking at our, our notes here, of course, yeah. um, with, how do you think scientists go about publishing their research? How do I think scientists go about publishing their research? So, um, I imagine it starts with some kind of an idea, whether you are, you start with, you know, a hypothesis. So either right. some brand new idea or you're, you know, you've heard about something or you've read other research. 
I assume you have to go to like either an ethics board or something else at whatever your institution is that like gives a green light and will approve funding. Then you go through, you do whatever the research is, and then you've got to write it up. And I imagine at that point that you try and get it published, but there's like, you know, as is with everything, like you're trying to, you're trying to make it worth reading. You're trying to make it worth publishing. So you're going to be kind of more inclined to either leave out certain things or really emphasize, you know, parts of the study that you think might be more likely to get it published by, I'm assuming that kind of the final step in this is similar to how, you know, magazines and newspapers have editors that scientific journals have sort of gatekeepers or people that are functioning as gatekeepers that basically decide, yep, this is going in and this is going out. And, you know, the more as a scientist, the more material you get published, you know, the better your standing is or the more money you can make or, you know, whatever, whatever rewards might come from that. But that's kind of the way I've thought that the the process always worked. That is more or less true. Uh, there are certain things okay. in there that you definitely got right. So we'll, we'll everything sort of unlike the research side of it, you, you got right. So we'll just pick up. Okay. So after the research is done, you have your conclusions. You, you know the, the, what the work you did says. You write it up. And what that means can be a variety of things, depending on what journal you plan on submitting it to. Because every journal has different formatting requirements, has, uh, for example, some of the more prestigious journals, such as Nature or Science, have very strict page limits because every issue they put out uh, contains just a lot of research. So including references, uh, a paper in Nature can be as little as like four to five pages. Which, really? Yeah. Um. And that's, you know, that sounds like, that sounds quite short and, and they, they are short, but they also pack a lot in. Like typically those are three columns per page of text uh, in nature and science uh, okay. papers. Um, so it is, they're, they're very, very dense. Um, now, is but, this the kind of thing that a lay person could read or is this? We are going this, to get you know, very either. much into that in a little bit. All right, never mind. So once you write up your paper, you submit it to the journal that you want to publish it. It is basically an application. And with some journals, the scientist has to pay to even get it looked at. Ooh, that seems like crimes. I don't, maybe not crimes. I don't, let me retract that. But that seems ethically compromised. So, I, I will say, and we will get more into this in a bit, that is typically only for journals. And I say typically, not always. It is typically only for open access journals. So, journals that anybody can read just through Googling, you know. Um, okay. After, after you submit it, and we will, we will circle back to that. After you submit it, there are reviewers, which are those sort of gatekeeper type people who read the paper, evaluate it, um, make sure the science is good, offer any critiques. Those people are volunteers. 
they do not get paid. Hmm. And they're also anonymous. So it's not even, which is good. Um, the, the best kind of reviews are double blind. So the reviewers don't know the name of, of the people reviewing it. And, uh, the submitter, you know, the author does not know who reviews him. So there's no kind of bias in there because as we've talked about, uh, there's quite a lot of ego in paleontology, um, and in science in general. So we, there, if it's double blind, there's as, as little of conflict of interest as possible. That makes total sense. I'm just wondering what's in it for these unpaid anonymous volunteers. Is it is it purely an altruistic? I want to expand the understanding of human knowledge, or like what what's in it for these guys that are doing unpaid work? Off the top of my head, I don't know. To be honest, okay. I don't know if it sort of gets them in good with the paper. So it's like next time they go to publish something to that paper it sort of looks a little better for them. I don't know. I don't want, I also don't want to imply that because I, I don't know. Okay. But given the nature of this industry, that would not surprise me. Okay. So go on. You submit your paper. These anonymous reviewers critique it, send it back to you. You can do with their critiques, what you will. Um, typically you follow them just because they're the people who also review it the second time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> papers very rarely get just like accepted the first time, uh, with, with no critiques. So you submit it as many times as, you know, are necessary. So for example, I actually, uh, for a paper I'm reading for a class, um, the paper was received in November, 2008. It was accepted in March, 2010. So about a year and a half later. And really? it was available online May of 2010. So um, that's that. when I saw that, that struck me as unusually long. So I don't think that's typically the case, but it can be quite a while. Um, but so then they accept it and they publish it. After it is published, the author is not like the copyright holder of, of that paper. The journal is you sign so over basically so they... any rights you have to that literature. Okay. Which that means, means the journal can then charge whatever it wants for people to see it. Is this one of those things where once that happens, if you were to hypothetically email the scientist or whomever was in charge of that saying, Hey, I would like to see this research. They might just send it to you because it's like, eh, well, I'm not making anything off it anyways. I would say th the majority of the time. Yes, they will. However, if they do that, they are breaking copyright law. That is illegal for them to do. How illegal? Probably fine. <laughs> okay. But so the whole reason that I wanted to do this episode was because I remember just reading online somewhere, like not recently, but a handful of years ago, um, by somebody who is like a climate denier saying something like, oh, all these scientists are just publishing what's, what's the fad, you know, climate change so that they can make money. And I'm like, 
if you knew anything about how scientific publishing works, you would knew you would know how stupid you sound. Because scientists, I would I would say I feel very comfortable saying with extremely rare circumstances, scientists do not get paid for publishing research. Which then begs the question, how do they get paid? Because they're generally teaching somewhere. Okay, so the the publishing science is I don't want to quite I don't want to say it's a hobby because it's it's more than that, but it is not so, what pays the bills. For a lot of institutions, and I think some are getting away from this, but at least my school is not, um, and at least the school I did my undergrad at is not. Um, it is a requirement to get tenure that you need to publish like one paper a year. Mm-hmm. And so, if you don't, either you know, and you know this varies, I'm sure, wildly from school to school, like. Uh, I, I'm applying for some community college teaching jobs. I imagine publishing is not a high priority for them. But I know here, you know, one of my teachers is going is, you know, in her third, yeah, her third year of teaching. And so she's on like a tenure track and she needs to publish basically every year. And so it's basically if you don't, all right, we're going to find someone else because they make our school look more you know, attractive to potential students. Okay. So it's, it is a part of the job up until you get tenure. That is to say, to say teaching and publishing are two separate things wouldn't be correct. At least until in many schools, many institutions, you wind up getting tenure. And even that like publishing, like how many papers you put out definitely slows down after you get tenure. Um, But it doesn't stop, you know, it is still, I, I don't know if there's like a written, you need to publish, you know, X amount of papers every couple of years. Um, but it's definitely like an expectation that you still publish of, again, depending on the school. Okay. So it is an expectation, but I wouldn't say it's like a requirement per se, but again, I, I haven't seen like any of my teacher's contracts or anything like that to say that for sure. All this goes back to saying is that, you know, outside of, you know, it is very much the exception, not the rule that as far as scientists getting rich off of publishing, you know, like the example you gave climate change, just to take it back to there, like scientists are not getting rich by publishing research, regardless of what that research says. Right. And like, I would say, Probably the most common thing is for really, really large research institutions, such as your Harvards, your Yales, your Syracuse University. Um, they, hey. I know I had to throw that in. Well, and the reason that I know this is because I know several people. I know several people doing this at Syracuse, where they are not teachers. They are. Um, I'm trying to think about the actual title is. I think technically they are professor. Like their, their title is professor at the school, but they don't teach. What they do is basically just have access to that university's labs and equipment. And they're, they don't even get paid by the school. Their pay comes from grants that they themselves write. 
Which so in that case, like, yeah, if if you're very good at grant writing, and as I think we've talked about on this uh, on this podcast before, if you are like twenty five percent successful at grant writing, you are incredible at it. Um, so it's like those those are the kinds of people who do this, where it's like they just constantly write grants, just throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks, and that is how they get paid. But, you know, it is conditional for those grants that they do research and publish research. So in that sense, yes, some scientists do get paid for research, but it is not like they get paid before they publish it. They use that money to publish the research. It's not like they publish this article and then they cash checks based on how well the article does. It's not like a traditional book in that way. Right, it's sort of reversed. Exactly. Um, so that is essentially how it works. And now I want to talk a little bit more about the industry of publishing and just how horrible <laughs> it really is. It is frankly disgusting. Uh, All right, let's get into it. So however big you think this industry might be, it is bigger. Bigger in what? So, like, how are we measuring this? In, in like, like just by dollars? Like dollars, yes. Okay. So, in the, the last uh, year that I was able to find information on this was 2015. So, academic publishing has roughly the same economic value as the entire coal industry, which is talked about <laughs> endlessly. It's talked about endlessly by, by politicians. By basically everybody. We got to have coal. We got to have coal. We got to save the coal industry. There's so many people working in it. And which there are. There are definitely way more people working in coal than academic publishing. At least who get paid directly for it. But, um, and keep in mind this was 2015 were were these numbers. So I imagine that coal, you know, the economic value of of coal has decreased since then. And I, from my just anecdotal experience, uh, publishing has not gone down. But I think... Uh, I'm just, and I'm just pulling these numbers off the top of my head from what I remember. I think coal was about 28 or so billion dollars in 2015. Academic publishing was about 25 billion. So it's roughly that, about mean, as economic as coal. I mean, that really is nuts. And I guess I'm not entirely sure. You know, it's one of those things I'd love to know what else is, is on par with, you know, say coal. Cause like you said, coal gets talked about so much in, you know, in the course of political discourse. Um, and it's like, you would just love to know, okay, coal seems to be a really big and important industry. And for a lot of people in a lot of communities, it is, and I don't want to, I don't want to scoff at that, but yeah. it, like, it definitely, it definitely like makes me think, okay, just hearing this, what else is on par with that? And just the, the publishing industry, this is, you know, what the scientific publishing industry you said? Yep. Yeah, like, or not, not even not is... scientific, ac- academic publishing. So okay, this ac- like, in, academic includes publishing. those like those like economics journals, uh, basically any kind of people who do like research and statistics and things like that for a living. Yeah. I, I, I guess I don't know if there's a point to, to, you know, kind of my wonderment here. It's just kind of staggering to hear that. Yeah. And, you know, and to hear, like hear those two things put on equal footing, these two, you know, these two things that I wouldn't be putting together a whole lot, but just to see them just juxtaposed. It's definitely interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And while, uh, you know, publishing is very generally 
not profitable for scientists. It is extraordinarily profitable for the actual journals themselves. And so, okay, so for, for the example, people that do the work, okay, go on. No, go ahead. I was just going to make sure. I, so the people that were doing sort of like the boots on the ground work, you know, they are, you know, they are not making a whole lot. They are kind of living, you know, a typical life and the publishing companies are running away with it. You know, the, your, your journals, nature and science or whatever. That is exactly right. So the, the way, like an analogy that I just sort of thought of uh, that I think more people would relate to, it would be like if no YouTube personalities or anybody on YouTube got paid for what they did. They just made the content that they wanted to make, that they knew how to make because they had to for another job they got paid for, but YouTube did not pay them. YouTube took all that money for itself. This is like 2008 YouTube. Kind of, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I also want to give a couple examples of how much it actually costs to publish. Um, so Nature has, you know, the, the core journal Nature and then several others. Uh, there's like Nature Communications, Nature Biology, Nature Geology. So there's lots of several ones. So to publish in Nature Communications, which is open source, uh, it costs... $5,560 per article. Five, okay. So you, so you, the scientists have to pay, you know, five grand plus to get your yes. thing published. Okay. Yep. And then there, there is for nature proper, which has sort of the biggest reach of probably any scientific journal to my knowledge. So if you want to publish just to nature without it being open source, I don't believe that has a fee. However, there is an option to make it open source, meaning anyone can find it. Anybody has access to it. Guess how much that costs? Without looking uh, at the doc because it's on there. I'm not, I'm not looking at the doc. I'm like, I'm intentionally looking away from the doc during this episode because I can see where this is going with a lot of this. I, I don't, I don't even know. I'm going to, a hundred dollars. <laughs> no, you went the wrong way. <laughs> I went the wrong way. You went the wrong way. So, so the open, so wait, open source, open source is more expensive. Yes, because I, mm, the journal oh, isn't I, making any money by charging people for access to that paper. That's how journals. Oh make my money. goodness! Oh my goodness! That makes so much more sense now. So, when oh you my an, goodness! When you publish the open source option for an article in nature, it costs $11,000 or $11,390. So it's more than twice as expensive. Yeah. Because nature wow. has so much broader of a reach than nature communications. So that obviously incentivizes authors because you know, and, and I said, we can talk about like funding for research and science instead of publishing uh, at a different time. But funding is generally kind of hard to come by in a lot of areas of science. So obviously that incentivizes you to not do the open source option, which will make nature in the end more money. Um, and like we said, they typically do this because if it's open source, that means that I just through Google could find it 
and not have to pay money to look at that research, which re- in, in my opinion is how research should be. But, and I understand that companies do have to make money. I, I get that too. But at the same time, a lot of this research is like government funded. It comes from yours and mine tax dollars. Shouldn't we be able to see it then? That would kind of, yeah. I mean, that's I like you said. I understand that, right? I understand you know companies need to make money, and if you know, and if the system can function, if the system can function privately, then okay, you know, so be it. It it might seem odd, or it might be you know not for the benefit of everyone, but you know if it makes money, it makes money. But if it's if the system can't function without government tax dollars, then it would seem to make sense that if you know if the com, you know the community is paying for it, then the community gets to reap the benefits of of all of that. I yeah, I don't I don't really well, see yeah, any way out of that one. A an example that's given in that uh, documentary is like uh, so say say somebody's wife or or spouse or or family member or otherwise comes down with some disease, you know, and you want to be proactive. You want to look up the research about that disease to see, okay, what can I, is there anything that I can do, you know, in my, you know, non-medical capacity, just make life easier. So you, or you just want to be knowledgeable about the disease because it's something that your family member's going through. Um, you know, cancer research is probably off the top of my head. I can't think of another, like area of science that is probably more funded federally than cancer research other than currently COVID stuff. Um, hmm. But so that is funded. It's not like the, the government pays those journals. They pay the scientists. They fund those grant applications to then do the research. So the research is federally funded, but once you hand it over to that journal so that other scientists can see it, and that you're spreading your knowledge, which is the whole point of science. Um, once you hand that knowledge over to that journal, it's behind a paywall. And even though the, the, the federal government, your tax money paid for that, not paid for that information to be found, you do not have access to it. I, yeah, I personally I know this don't is- see how that makes sense. Gavin, I know this is like not exactly related to what you were just talking about, but I just have sort of a meta question to ask about this episode. Is there going to be a good yeah, news of part of this? Is there? Okay, oh, no. Thank you. Nope. Oh, there's not? Oh. No. Um, a little bit. <sighs> All right. Well, a little bit. I don't believe um, you, but okay. Let's go. <laughs> um. So let's see. Let me. I we're we're quite off track at this point, but at this point, whatever. Um, <laughs> looking looking back to the Google Doc, I think you're fine to look at it for the rest. Um, actually, I lied. Don't look at the doc. Uh, <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Um, so, like I said, there there are some journals that, even though they are not open source, do sort of charge a fee. Um, for example, the most prestigious uh, journal in my field, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. Uh, is operated by the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. And it is cheaper, but still not free, to publish in the journal if you're a member of the Society. So it's like, they get money out of you two ways. How much? If like, you're a is, member, is it one of the things if, where it's worth it if to be a member? Or In my opinion, no. I, I am not okay. a member of 
of we we call it SVP. I am not a member of SVP. Um, I might have been if you know. I I'm considering it going forward if um there's like an in person uh annual meeting this fall. Um, but otherwise, for me, like I I just don't think it's worth it because like un- unless you are a diehard you know you want all of your research to be presented at at an svp conference no i personally don't think it's worth it because the prices keep going up because they have to keep funding this journal and they're literally just milking their scientists for money is the way i see it so that is why i'm not currently a member of svp it seems reasonable um, and when I say cheaper, it was like a hundred dollars cheaper. Cause I think it was like 400 some, if you were not a member and then 300 some, if you were a member. So even if you are a member, it's still over $300 to publish in this journal. So, and it's not even open source. So, jeez, yeah. So once again, just, just to reiterate, because this is the whole point of me wanting to talk about this is that once an article is published, Scientists don't make a dime from it. The paper does, or the journal does. So these journals make incredible amounts of profits. Guess how much, just for example, one one of what, in my experience, is a company that most people think is a really just kind of horrible company, Walmart. How much do Are you, you think telling Walmart's- me that Walmart... Why do you mean that Walmart is a bad company? Oh, Gavin. Gavin, I don't know where you could have gotten that from. How much do you think their annual profit margin is, roughly? Uh, is this in terms of like dollars or percent or? Uh, percent. By percent? Their profit margin by percent. So I know in most retail stores, it's generally in the 50% range, or at least I think I know that it's in the uh, 50% no, range. No, that is not correct. <laughs> for, for Walmart like, or for... So if you're talking about like selling individual items, yes, but I'm talking about total. So like after they pay for electricity, after they pay for labor. Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. So that's got to go down. Just like to- total annual profit margin. 10%. For Walmart, it's around 5 Okay, that is that's smaller than I would have guessed, but okay. Right. Uh, it is not uncommon for some of the bigger journals to have profit margins between thirty and forty percent. What the? Again, so thinking about this again a little bit rationally, it's like okay, they don't have to put up with you know stores or paying cashiers or like physically moving product. I guess, in and the not same just way. that. So, not just that, they don't pay the researchers. They don't pay the reviewers. Right. The people who actually do the work and make their content don't get paid for it. Right. All of this seems like more of a reason to make it much cheaper to either access the research or to publish or both rather than, you know, reasons to keep more of the pro- – like I – again, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to hate on people for making money. I am not – yeah, I, that, is, that is not my game, but it definitely seems like something is wrong with that industry when the people doing most of the work aren't getting, aren't sharing in the profits when very clearly the companies that are doing this are making enough money to, to pass the pie around. Exactly. And like, and and they make it very clear in the documentary. They're like every company 
you know, should be able, you know, it, you know, if they are able, if they're whatever system they have going, they should be able to be sustainable and make a profit. Total, totally agree. But the reason why these profit margins are so high is because of how they charge schools. Because think about it, what individual person is charging for or is paying for an annual subscription of nature? Probably very few. So what schools and more specifically like their libraries do is they have to buy uh, essentially like a, you know, really expensive subscription to each of these papers so that their researchers that work at that school will have access to the research so that they can do their own research to then send to those papers. So they control the supply and the demand. <laughs> I, Which I, I, to me kind of sounds like a monopoly, but whatever. Um, but yeah, I with, mean, like, that's I, also you know, I'm out of words through all of this. Yeah, which is is also super hard to prove because it's it's not like it's just one. It's not like one company controls all of the scientific journals. Um, by and large, they're all pretty separate. But realistically, so my school, you know, I go to my school for paleontology, but uh, a big part of my school is uh, geological engineering. And so any of like the geological engineering journals, they can charge schools basically whatever they want. They can charge my school basically what as, as high a price as they want. And my school is like, well, if we want students to still come here for this so that we can make money, we have to pay it. We don't have a choice. Right, they're, they're not a monopoly in the sense that like they're the only journals around because there's lots of different journals. But they're, you know, when you start getting to the specifics of like a paleontology journal, I imagine there's not a whole lot of market competition for that space. That That's also a really good point. Is that, you know, wh where else are you going to publish? You know, and like, mm -hmm. to an extent, there are others, you know, there's just the journal paleontology. There's, um, paleontology is kind of unique in that we could publish in like a, a couple biology journals, you know, that wouldn't be unusual. Um, but for more sort of narrow fields that aren't as like interdisciplinary, if you're, uh, you know, a geophysicist where you you have like three options. So yeah, it, it really is very monopolistic in its structure. And, but again, school libraries have to pay it because what right. other choice do they have? At least here where, you know, our schools have the money to, which is honestly a, pretty considerable part of why to college tuition keeps getting so expensive because to have say there, there's roughly between 2000 and 2500 student undergrad students at my university because hypothetically every single one of them plus all of the faculty could uh have access to nature they basically need to buy that many subscriptions to nature so like I would I not be thinking about that when I was in school. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking about it when I was in school, I, just like all the all the different databases that have that are available, mm -hmm. and it's like I wonder what percentage of the student population uses more than like two of these. Yeah, but they're available to everyone. So like I I would not be shocked if my relatively small school, of like I said, between two thousand and twenty five hundred students, pays out like 
I would be surprised if it was less than five million a year that they pay out for journals. I would be surprised if it was less than that. Wow. Oh my god. Um, and let alone, you know, and we're we're even like a pretty narrowly focused STEM school. Uh, let alone some place like right, that's Harvard. what I figured. <laughs> you know, Harvard, I'm positive, shells out twenty plus million a year. So again, every company has the right to to try and make a profit, but this is gross. <laughs> that's like the only word that I can think of to really describe it is just gross. On occasion, when I talk about this kind of thing with my students, I call it the economic principle of what the hell are you going to do about it? Yeah. And like I said, so in America or most, you know, developed countries, most colleges will just up their tuition prices. Oh, well, people are still going to come here. Like we're Harvard. We're, we're supposed to be expensive, I guess. I don't know. But <laughs> so they, you know, most colleges in the United States can afford that where it becomes a really, really big problem is uh, in sort of developing countries where say there's like a relatively rural hospital in like Uganda or, or some other, or, or a rural part of India, you know, those doctors still need access to that research, but sucks be you. You can't afford it because you're in a developing country. They just don't have access to, necessary material to that can say that will save people's lives. And that's, that's a worst case scenario of it. It also sort of really limits what people will be studying in those countries. So also in the documentary, um, one person went and gave a talk at, I'm trying to think what country it is. I want to say it was somewhere in Turkey, but I don't know that for sure. Somewhere in that general uh, area of like, central to east asia or uh, central to east europe and um you know after after they you know gave their presentation they were sort of talking around with some of the grad students and just asking them what they were studying and he talked to like 10 or so students and every single one of them said the same thing and finally he was like why why like why is you're all studying like the same thing that's you know pretty specific why why this and they were like that's what our college could afford access to. That's the only literature we can read. So that's basically what we have to study. Which is not like a great reason to pick, you know, a discipline. Exactly. And not just that, but it's like, okay, say one of those 10 people has the potential to find like the cure for cancer or the cure for AIDS or some other major medical thing. But it's like, sorry, your school doesn't have access to the right medical journals to support that. So you have to go in, into this other thing and we're just losing out on just such potential, like incredible talents and minds in different fields because they don't have access to the literature that would support them properly. <sighs> yeah. Have we got the good news yet? We're, we're getting very close. So. Okay. Uh, open access is a movement that, at least since I've been paying attention and, and, you know, doing research myself has been really active. There are a lot, a lot of people that are really passionate and really good advocates for open access. Like I think, you know, as expensive as it is for the, you know, 11,000 plus dollars for nature 
to have like the open access option. As of a couple of years ago, there wasn't even an option. Oh, really? So, yeah. Um, and that's always how it's been because like, you know, scientific publishing has basically been the same since like the 1660s. The, the fundamental structure has not changed. Story for another time, but like, do you have a one sentence summary of what happened in the 1660s? Yeah, that was when the Royal Society of London uh, was okay, founded. I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah okay. so they're they're basically um, England's, like I think their like official titles like the National Academy of Sciences. Basically, it was it was the first modern like scientific journal, essentially. Um, Understood. And so, in the last nearly four hundred years, it's been more or less the same. Which, if you look at a lot of other things going on at the time, uh, it wasn't great. So. Why is this one of the things that we kept <laughs> of all things? <laughs> um, so, yeah, but there's, there's a lot of people that are really passionate about, it, and there are even a lot of completely dedicated open source journals or open access journals. Um, and while they might be less far reaching than say a nature or science, um, something that they point out in the movie or in that documentary is Okay, if, if you're in this field and dedicated enough to be publishing in it and looking up research, if something's in your area, you're going to find it. It doesn't matter if it's in Nature or the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. If, even if it's in some open access one that's relatively small, you're going to stumble across it. Mm-hmm. So they're like, if it doesn't have, you know, a big thing with journals is something called like impact factor, which is basically like how many people that article can reach. Obviously the big name journals like nature and science have a really high impact factor. Whereas some of these, uh, you know, smaller open access ones might not. However, that really is just kind of a giant scam shocker. Um, <laughs> that really doesn't mean much these days, because, you know, like I said, if, if you're dedicated enough to be studying a, a specific area, if something's published in your area, you're going to find it. Um, and so they, they talk a lot about a couple specific uh, open access journals and then one uh, not very much not open access uh, sort of owner of a lot of journals called Elsevier. Um, if you have ever sort of like downloaded a PDF of a paper and you see like this little tree up in the upper left corner with mm -hmm. like Elsevier in it, which okay. just in my experience um, for, you know, reading papers for classes and things like that over the last, you know, seven years that I've been in college. Um, I would say at least 40% of the papers I've read are, have that logo and are owned by Elsevier. So Elsevier is sort of the biggest name in publishing, but they're sort of behind the scenes. They're basically like how, uh, I'm trying to think, like the the Turner Network owns like CNN, but CNN's the face you see. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, exactly. Um, Elsevier is the equivalent of like the Turner Network, essentially. Yeah. So Okay. Pay no attention um, to the man behind the curtain. 
yeah, they also make like 45% profit margin. Uh, so I'm noticing a theme. Yeah. So with open access, like I said, things are getting a lot better and a good moral is that something that we've talked about before when I think I'm trying to think of what episode that was. We were just sort of talking about the scientific process in general, but like bad science always gets caught. Might take a while, but it always gets caught. So that's sort of one sort of piece of propaganda type concern that people, mostly people like involved in the publishing industry have been like, well, if, if everything's open source, you know, the quality is going to go down, you know, bad science is going to get through. And that does occasionally happen, you know, and there will be uh, also down in the show notes, a link to a really fun paper that I happened to, that I happened to stumble across. Uh, so you might not know. I am a rather large fan of the Pokemon franchise. I, <laughs> I, I knew that. Absolutely. So uh, early on in COVID, everyone was publishing a lot of things just because there was a lot of new things to learn, right? Which makes sense. And because of that, some uh, online journals sort of put things through a less strict uh, like revision process or, or uh, review process basically just in order to get information out because if it was going to be locked up potentially, you know, like I said, for that paper earlier for like a year and a half, that's not going to do anybody any good on COVID. So right. it, wh- why they did it makes sense. However, some particular journals, uh, specifically the open source ones, because you know, you pay to send them your paper, essentially, um, were being pretty predatory and basically just letting anything through. And so one paper that I found that I actually found through somebody memeing, like somebody wrote this as a meme to see if they could get it through the process. And it did. It is uh, a paper titled, let me open it up here. Let's see. It is called Silage City COVID-19 Outbreak Linked to Zubat Consumption. So, Silage City is the name of a, of a location in one of the Pokemon games. And Zubat, obviously, is a Pokemon. So, I... the people publishing it, the, the authors listed, um, is one of the professors from one of the games, the nurse from one of the games, and Gregory House from the TV show House. House. Uh, <laughs> I mean... At one point in the paper... Give him some me, credit there. Oh, yeah. In one, in one sentence in the paper. So this is a very short, uh, including references, three-page paper. So it's not even like it was a massive bear to read. One of the sentences literally in the paper says... Epidemiologists believe it highly likely that a, that a journal publishing this paper does not practice peer review and therefore must be predatory. <laughs> that is a sentence in the paper. And based on that context, and there's also um, like the, the author who actually wrote this and submitted it um, published like an, an article in on like a blog or something about it as well. And 
they submitted it to a couple different papers just to see what would happen. And yeah, I mean, good it was, them. oh yeah, no, like this person's an absolute hero. I love this person. I'd, right. This is, this is like the, one of the best ways to actually get stuff, you know, to highlight the effects of a problem or, the, you know, to highlight a problem exists is to do something like this to prove that it's a problem. Exactly. You know, so sometimes trolls can be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> like um, a thousand asterisks onto that for anybody that might be listening, but agreed. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. So bad science and bad journals are always found. Again, it might take a little while, but they are always found. So I feel like that sort of propaganda-y thought that like, you know, all these open access journals, you know, they're not going to be as rigorous is, is just not true. Uh, and that was sort of the biggest argument that I could find basically anywhere uh, against sort of the open access movement. And it's a bad one. So <laughs> um, also, I, I do want to briefly mention, I'm not going to talk about it a ton because it's very illegal. Um, but there is, I mean, it won't get us in trouble for talking about it, but um, just there acknowledging is its existence. Oh, yeah. There's a website called SciHub. Just uh, SCI Hub. And will this link Google be in the that, show notes? No. Um, okay. No, it will not. No, it will not. Well, because it changes very often, because what they're doing is legal. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it is operated by uh, a woman. I think she's in Russia. Russia or some somewhere in like East Asia like that or East I keep saying East Asia uh, East Eastern Europe like that as well. Um, operated by but pirates. she essentially, huh? Operated by pirates, we'll say. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. She, like she's one hundred percent a pirate. Like she literally just takes. I don't know how she gets the the PDFs of all these papers, but somehow she does. You can just type in or like copy paste like the the DOI, which is basically the identification number that every published piece of literature has uh it has like its own individual doi you can just copy paste that mm -hmm. into sci-hub and it will spit you out a pdf wow. obviously very illegal <laughs> very, and you very shouldn't illegal. do it you should not do that we are not but, endorsing it we are just simply acknowledging its existence well, they also talk about her quite a lot in the documentary as well. Um, okay, I shouldn't I shouldn't say quite a lot. They they like talk to her, you know, herself, and she's basically like, okay, I just think it's really dumb that people have to pay for that, or at least as much as they do. And even me, like, there, there's been times where I needed a paper but could could not find it available to me, even with all the things that my school pays for. I'm like, well, why are we paying for things at all then? When I can just right. get it on SciHub for free, um, <laughs> but I've I've definitely never used SciHub. I have to say that, um, yeah. So, all in all, there are signs that this is getting better, but instead of just being mad at your college for raising tuition every year, be mad at these which people. You Oh, which you should be, absolutely. But also be just as mad, if not more mad, at these people because, you know, 
most of the things that they produce were not produced by them, did not get paid for, or did, did not get properly compensated for, and was indirectly paid for by your tax money. And with that, I think that's pretty much all I got. I really but hope things so. are getting better. Things are getting better. Yeah, it's good to know that people are paying attention to this kind of problem. This is this always strikes me as one of those things where it's good that people are paying attention to the problem. And every time you go check the Wikipedia page for this, like every seven months, it's like mm. there's one or two new developments where like, you know, one person's optimistic and you just replay that cycle, you know, until someone dies. So <laughs> I, I'm always I'm always pe- pessimistic on these kinds of things, but it is good to know that you know, at the very least there's, you know, there's movies being made and there's people talking about this and you know, there are people that are doing what they can to, you know, to try and change the system and all the power to them. You know, all, we are both you and I are very clearly rooting for them to succeed. Absolutely. And like, like I said, I think the biggest thing for me personally is just like how much better we could be in science or just like as a society, if everyone had equal access to these because, like, there could be someone in, like, I don't know, like, a country that most people think of as, like, typically poor, you know, some somewhere like Central African Republic or, like, Sudan or somewhere like that, that, like, that person could be potentially the person to find the cure for AIDS, which kills still, like, thousands and thousands, if not, like, millions of people in Africa and everywhere else around the world, like, every year. But because that individual happens to live in you know a developing or poor country sorry you just don't have you just can't read the things that you would need to read and i think that's super stupid but and i think that's about all the uh, depression i can take for for today's episode (laughs) so this has been we go from uh one of my favorite episodes to uh one of my least favorite yet still you know probably one of our more important episodes Today, this has been episode 14 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Gavin, promise me I'm going to smile next week. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking to me. Wonderful. You should always smile. I'm always smiling. Hey, it's St. Patrick's Day when this comes out. So, oh, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, so happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody that uh, that made it to the end of this one. And, uh, and hopefully you can have a... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully you can have a, a slightly more cheery day than uh, than we had recording this. But thank you very much. This has been episode fourteen I mean, I of fun. I Wish You Were Dead. I'm glad you had fun. I didn't. I I'll be honest. This was. <laughs> I love talking to you. I love learning new things. But like you know, sometimes the truth hurts, and I uh, I will admit when the truth hurts. Sure so does. thank you everybody, and we will see you guys next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.